with demand expected to come back. But the question remains, does this mean the economy is back on track? Companies now, after experimenting with offshore and places like India, Philippines, and Poland, want to bring those jobs back. We invest in the U.S. We're the biggest exporter in the country. In the cycle one right now, we're creating jobs. From Radio America, it's Neil Asbury's Made in America. The show that explores American industry, large and small, and promotes American-made products everywhere. Put Neil Asbury's Made in America to work for you. A very big welcome to you today. I'm Neil Asbury, together with co-host Dr. Rich Rothman. Hey, Rich, not all states have been created equal. Think about this. The real value of our dollar. And there's a huge uh, disparity between our states when it comes to what they're able to get for their hard-earned dollar. We're going to be talking about that here coming up in the show. We're going to be also talking about uh, about our trade agreements. It's not that we don't have good trade agreements in deals that's out there, but we're just not enforcing them. We've set up all these rules with our trading partners, but things like intellectual property theft, there's all kinds of mechanisms for our government to shut it down but they just don't have the guts to do it. Going to be a really fascinating discussion. Uh, something here that's uh, that's counterintuitive. Actually, when I read it, you know, it's not what I would have thought. You know, of course, uh, back in the 70s and, um, you know, when I was growing up, that uh, we had a lot of our companies, big companies, leaving the city and, hap- and, and moving out to suburbia. I grew up in North Jersey, and a lot of the companies in New York headed over to Jersey. And that North Jersey corridor is home to some of our biggest corporations because they thought they would get out of the city. But now are some of these corporations moving back to the city? And if they are, why are they doing it? Well, we're very pleased to have on the show David Collis, who's a professor at the Harvard Business School. And there was a piece just recently, Is Corporate America Leaving the Suburbs for the City?, in which David was quoted a few times. David, welcome to Made in America. Thank you, Neil. So tell us, I mean, what's going on with this? Because, I mean, you use the example of GE, um, Jeffrey Immelt Rich is actually oh, leaving the suburbs and heading to Boston, one of our, well, not so favored uh, CEOs. But uh, Davis, <laughs> tell us what's going on. Um, a couple of things. The, I, I think, first of all, the cities themselves, the, the downtowns are improving relative to the 70s. I mean, if you think back to crime rates, you know, New York City in the 70s, the people were fleeing the cities. You know, cities themselves have made a comeback. You know, crime's much lower. Um, you know, buildings are being rebuilt. There's an infrastructure of restaurants, clubs, all those sorts of things. Um, so they're more attractive, I think, than they were in the 70s, and now they're offering tax incentives to get people to move back as well. So there's that sort of the the supply side is a lot better than it was. And on the demand side, I think, you know, a couple of things happening. Um, One is that the millennial generation um, is keener to stay in the city than move to the suburbs. Um, You know, the average age of marriage and first children is creeping up. Um, the you know the kids coming out of universities you know, want to be in the downtown area, um, and to attract them you have to be locating there. So that's bringing in the, the younger people that they're trying to attract, and then the the headquarters themselves are what I think about as sort of disaggregating. 
so that instead of having GE's headquarters in Fairfield with, you know, thousands of people, the, they're breaking it up into the various components so that Jeff Immelt and the C-suite moves to downtown Boston. You know, all the people who are doing, you know, IT back office stuff perhaps move um, to a low-cost location. Maybe the tax and legal people go over to the U.K. So the headquarters is being sort of broken up. It's no longer monolithic. And each part of it is being relocated to the optimal uh, location. And for the CEO, the C-suite level, that probably is a you know, major uh, urban downtown area. You know, they get access to um, the uh, communications much easier, you know, uh, flights, the clients, the customers, the banker. You know, it's much easier for them to do business there. And so well, you I, know, I think a number know, of things going it, on, um, both demand uh, and supply side, you know, result in yeah, at least a component of corporate headquarters moving to the downtown area. Well, this is very actually. I think this is very exciting because this is this is the metamorphosis that we're going through in the United States right now. You know, I'll give you a good example. The age bracket that you're talking about would be just slightly older than millennials. Those are my kids, and they're growing yeah. up and they work and they function. One works for a, a company called Apple, and the other one has his own company. They both do fairly well. But what they're interested in, when they go to New York, for example, where I grew up. They stay in places off of Avenue D, which basically gave me a heart attack when I heard, where are you staying? Well, we're staying down you know, by Avenue D, which was a very, very tough neighborhood when I was a kid. Well, the word, of course, is gentrification, and it's all changed. Yes. But then again, yeah. so is the psychology that you're talking about. You know, you just talked about, well, the telecommunications is better. Well, that's very, very important for this generation because everything is social. You know what it is? It's sort of like the kids don't tuck their shirts in anymore, and that's okay. You can get away with that. So the, the mores or the concepts that I had growing up are not there. And I think when we see that the corporations are leaving the suburbs and they're coming back to the burb, you know, they're coming back to the urban environment, it really makes for, you know what, maybe it's better. Maybe it really works better, and maybe it better reflects where this next generation is really going. What say you? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think, you know, one of the things that strikes me about our students is 15, 20 years ago, what they wanted to do was go and be bankers or consultants. Now they all want to have their own companies. They all want to be entrepreneurs. And if you think about sort of the entrepreneurial environment, that's not in the suburbs somewhere. The, and yet that's their role model. That's what a lot of them sound like your son's done it. That's what they want to aspire to. And so we're, if they're going to work in a corporation, they at least want to be in the same media. You know, and in fact, corporations, so the new GE headquarters in Boston is being made to look like um, you know, a startup, open plan, all the rest of it, um, because they have to attract exactly that new generation. And well, David, this is one, one question I like to ask. I mean, does the governor matter? I mean, I, I can't imagine that uh, companies would be attracted to de Blasio in New York, as an example. Uh, like you said, that some of these cities are offering really great incentives. But you have to want the business community to be there. You have to have some sort of sympathy for the sort of issues that it takes to create a business and to run a business and all of the issues that they're faced with. So, you know, are the cities that are attracting uh, back these big mega companies into the downtown areas, are they having governors that, that get it, that, that want them to be there and that are aggressively seeking them to come back? 
Um, I, I would say so, yes. Not not just the governor, the mayor as well. And, uh, you're right. If you think about it, GE was looking at a number of cities, and at some level it is. It's a competition to, to bring them there. If you're not going to be providing an environment that's conducive, they're going to cross you off the list to possible locations. So, yeah, it's, I think it's a necessary condition to have the support, the enthusiasm of the political entities involved. And, and it's not necessarily sufficient, but I think you're right. It's absolutely necessary if you're in it because it is competitive. Gee, you could have gone, they could have gone to New York. Um, they could have gone somewhere. You know, they could have gone to the West Coast if they really wanted to. Well, they, they may have done that. You know, I think this follows through in, in the corporate psychology when you look at folks like Google and Apple, and, you, and I happen to know Apple well because I have my son's benefits policy in my computer that he shared with me. But, uh, but when you look at Google as well, and the, the, the psychology of the companies have changed because they want to encourage this. It's almost like a, 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 a Maslow concept of the hierarchies. That everything that we have to take care of the basics for you. So we're going to give you good insurance, and we're going to give you good workout environment, and we're going to actually have insurance for your pet, which they do at Apple. And we're going to make sure you have dental, and make sure you have eyes, and we're going to make sure you have the holidays, and we're going to make sure that all of that is taken care of so then you can function so much better for the corporation. And it almost seems like we're in a reverse Alvin Toffler-esque environment where we're reversing the concept of the ever-expanding megalopolis, and now we're bringing it back, and we're going to take advantage of a, more of a condensed, upgraded, you know, gentrified megalopolis that's really going to be in a, in a better urban location rather than suburban. Does that seem kind of real to you? Yeah. The, you know, the, if, if I was to look at downtown areas and say, what's the one thing they don't provide? It is schools, I think. That's still a big issue. So what Good we're point. talking Very about now point. here, and, and, and again, that's why I say I think this, you know, older age of first marriage and first children is supporting it as well. Because if you don't have kids, you don't need to live. I do think there is still a bit of an issue, you know, when you get to your late 30s and have two kids, that then maybe you would think about moving back to the suburbs. So I think there's a limit to it. Um, but the, certainly for the, you know, under 35, the, the city is the place to be. And if you're going to attract them, you want to get them early. You don't want them to go off and set up their own companies. You have to be there as a big organization. Yeah. Well, David, unfortunately we're out of time. But, hey, I'm really, really happy that our governors and mayors are out there competing for the business because that's exactly what the Asians did to get our companies to move overseas. They actually went out there and fought for them to be there. And it's time that we learn from them and uh, bring our businesses back to our cities. I think it's a great idea. And these people in our urban areas can certainly use the jobs. Hey, David, thanks for being on the show. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, Dr. Rothman is going to tell us the five blue-collar jobs that pay $100,000 a year. Made in America. Welcome to Made in America. I'm your host, Neil Asbury, with co-host Dr. Rich Rothman. Hey, Rich, I really want to get to five blue-collar jobs that pay $100,000 a year. I think we all want to know those. And the five jobs that will be the hardest to fill in 2025. And that's also going to be fascinating because, you know, people should start preparing for those maybe or at least telling their children about it. 
However, I just got to kind of circle back to David Collis for just a moment. You know, our big corporations moving back to the cities, a bit counterintuitive to me. But I will share this one thing. You know, I'm up in New York a, a, a lot. You know, I mean, it's the financial capital of the United States, or the financial capital of the world. And as an American entrepreneur, and I buy businesses, American manufacturing businesses, to create these American manufacturing jobs for our people, I have to borrow money. And unfortunately, I'm up in New York a lot, you know, trying to find uh, who's going to lend me some money so I can buy American manufacturing businesses so I can try to make them better and create a lot of jobs right there in their local communities. And I meet a lot of people from the financial world. And what I see, what I see is this, is that a lot of these younger people, that's right, the millennials, you know, these very bright young people, uh, they like to move into the city and live in the city. But as soon as they get married and have kids, I mean, they're out in Connecticut. And the average commute that I hear is an hour and 45 minutes one way, Rich. I mean, that's three and a half, four hours a day of commuting time. But they like to say, hey, look, you know, on the trains, you know, we you know, got Wi-Fi and I can sit there. But You but can get still, something done. But still, you know, that's the time of day that I'm at the gym and I'm doing other things or I'm spending with my family. That's a huge sacrifice. And it, what I believe to be a huge sacrifice in one's life, three, four hours a day in commute time compared to what else you could be doing. So, you know, I think you got to factor that in because the urban areas is not the place that you want to have your five and six year old children just running around playing. Well, that's a, that's very, very true. I think it's a very valid point. And, and here's something that is true, for, particularly in New York. You can hardly afford to live. A millennial could hardly afford to live in New York City to a degree. If you think about it, a, 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 in Brooklyn, a studio apartment can go for two to three thousand dollars a month for a room. That's what a studio is, basically a room and a bathroom. That's it. Right. Maybe you have a little terrace. I tend to doubt it. So that's a lot of money. So you would think that they would want to. I can understand these folks who live out in the countryside along a, a, a train line, so they can take you know the train in from Connecticut, the train in from New Jersey, whatever it happens to be. Not a bus, but a train, which would be less affected by weather. And, and they can get something done on it. And yet, I think in the long run, they might look at it and say, well, listen, I work hard. I commute hard. I'm doing what I have to do. But, man, on the weekend, I am living in two bedrooms or three bedrooms. Or I can, for that amount of money, I can afford a home in someplace southern New right, Jersey. Let me tell you, I lived in New Jersey as a, as a bachelor. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I lived in New York City uh, as a bachelor. And you get closet fever. I mean, you know, on the weekends, you want to get out of there. Well, now, I can't exactly imagine correct. how you could, but, you know, here's the other issue is, 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 is crime and crime in our urban uh, areas is way up, is way, way up. And, and, and that has a lot to do with unemployment. And it has because we don't have jobs. We don't have good paying jobs in Chicago. Thirty seven percent of African-American men are unemployed. And then you tie that back to the crime that's going on. But tie it back to all of our cities. So if we're not creating jobs in this country, it's directly connected to the crime rate. And, and that's and that's very much exasperated in our urban areas. So if we want to keep people and families living in our urban areas, they cannot be festering with crime. And the only way to deal with lowering crime rates in our urban cities is is by creating jobs and opportunity. And unfortunately, this Obama economy has not done that. It's not done that. It's all it's done is increased crime because people don't have jobs. There's a direct connection. More crime with less jobs. 
less crime with more jobs. So if you want to take a big stab at the crime rate and you want to lessen the people in our prison systems and, and, and you want to get more people being productive, you got to create jobs. That's the that's the crux of well, this whole that's thing. Well, that's correct. That's, that's the, the socioeconomics construct. That's the whole thing here. You're right. And there's a lot of and there's a lot of data to support that. But tell us, uh, Rich, we got just a couple of minutes left. What are the five blue collar jobs that pay one hundred thousand dollars a year? Well, it's very, very interesting because you think that some of these things are kind of obvious and some aren't. Obviously, plumbing, electrical and carpentry skills are absolutely going to be soaring. That's a great opportunity, a great place for people to be. And some people are making fourteen thousand dollars in just 30 days. In just 30 days, that's a month. Some of these folks who are in those fields now and going out into the future will be earning more than $14,000 because they're very skilled jobs. doesn't require a four-year or five-year or six years or seven years of education. It requires trade school, learning how to do those, those trades. Uh, other areas, which is the, here's one that is outrageously interesting. And by the way, my wife's cousin does this in Philadelphia. She's been doing it for 14 years. Dog walker. Dog, dog walk, walker? I swear to God, dog walker. $100,000 a Make $110,000 a year in urban areas right now. A hundred. Listen, and I got to tell you something. That's a hard job because someone's got to walk those dogs and talk to them and feed them and take care of them. And, have the and she scooper. can't take a lot of vacations. It's my cousin's, my, my wife's cousin. Very, very significant thing to do. So that's important. Listen, we're going to run out of time, but real quick, police officers, bartenders. That's a great job, by the way. A lot of it's cash. Contractors, construction managers, and the guys on rigs in North Dakota. It's a lonely job. Look at the science fiction film Outland. You'll understand it. Great areas make a lot of money. Very good, Rich. Well, hey, coming up, we have Diana Birchcott Roth from the Manhattan Institute is going to talk about U.S. trade policy and how our trade partners rip us off with impunity. Made in America. Sharply higher at the open, stocks continued to perform well over the course of the day Tuesday. And I think that bodes well here over the next couple of years for having bigger demands coming to this country. Now, more of Neil Asbury's Made in America. Welcome to Made in America. I'm your host, Neil Asbury, together with co-host Dr. Rich Rothman. Hey, Rich, we had a lot of radio shows and had a lot of segments and some really, really smart people on the show talking about our, our trade deals and as we were negotiating them. Remember, during the presidency of George W. Bush, I mean, there was a number of deals that were done. Um, the CAFTA agreement, uh, he had negotiated the Peru deal. He negotiated the Colombia deal. Um, he, he was very active, and, and he felt that he couldn't get the really mega deals in place, so he was going for these smaller deals to try to build up momentum for free trade and for opening up markets to American products. And we had... A number of the people from the USTR and from the Department of Commerce who were responsible for negotiating these things. And we know that they put a lot of effort into it, and they worked very hard on them. And the fact is, is that they come out with these huge, huge mega documents that took uh, took countless hours and hours and hours in, in, in the lobbying within Congress to get these things passed with all kinds of protections and things in there, like Intellectual property, which is something that is near and dear to our art because America produces more intellectual property than any other country. So we want to protect that. 
That is our jobs. That is our good-paying jobs. It's all tied to intellectual property. So we, we really negotiated that hard. And we were at the table and we're pounding our fist and saying, we must have this and we must have that. And, and we got it. But then we don't enforce it. And that's why, you know, we're in this huge mess. And that's why trade has gotten such a bad rap here lately. But a very, very good piece on this has just recently been published by Diana Furchgott Roth from the Manhattan Institute. And she's just published a piece, Rich, that's uh, called The U.S. Doesn't Even Enforce Trade Rules, Never Mind Enact Favorable Deals. Diana, welcome to Made in America. Thank you so much for having me on your show. This is such an important issue. Well, thank you. And we and, and Rich and I have talked a lot about this, uh, uh, notwithstanding the fact that in our American trade infrastructure at the USTR, the Department of Commerce, and the other 21 other agencies that has something to do with international trade. Um, uh, our posi- the people coming into these roles, many times it's building up resumes, it's political payback, it's this kind of revolving door. They're in there, they're starting to learn their jobs, and then they're off to something else because it was never a career destination. And our competitors, um, of foreign nations, have really taken advantage of that. And one of the things that they've really attacked is our intellectual property. We negotiate all these deals uh, with our trade partners, but yet with impunity they rip us off. They rip us off. So tell us about what this uh, article that you had uh, mentioned about how bad this is. Well, what is surprising is that the administration, the White House, uh, uh, the U.S. Trade Representative, which is part of the executive office of the president at the White House, every year publishes what they call a Section 301 report. It's published in April of every year. The last one is April 2016. And any of our listeners can just find it online. They just put into Google USTR Section 301 report and out it pops. Now, this is a lengthy report that details all the intellectual property violations of our trading partners. And it has about 12 countries, such as China and India and Russia, on a watch list. Every year it publishes a priority watch list of countries that rip us off the most. And it details how they rip us off. For example, it says in India, they make copies of our pharmaceuticals. In uh, China, they copy our software. And they don't protect, uh, you know, know, deals. If if someone has a factory in China, uh, the Chinese will frequently steal that technology. All that is detailed in this White House report. But much to my surprise, the White House and the USTR do nothing to punish these countries. And one would expect that one would at least maybe call in their ambassador to complain. We haven't heard of any ambassadors being called in to complain. We could perhaps block the imports of products made abroad with stolen technology. No. We could maybe block imports of some other products. So if India, for example, steals our pharmaceuticals or copies them, maybe we could block some Indian textiles. No, that doesn't happen either. So what's surprising me is not that... They steal, they steal our intellectual property because lots of people try to steal, but they're stealing it with complete impunity. We're not doing anything about it, even though we're recording this year after year in a public report published by the White House. Don't you think that's amazing? Well, you know, it, probably if we're looking for someone like Secretary Kerry to actually do something about this, the problem is that he tries to find a, a rock singer that he can bring to that country and serenade them into submission as to doing something, as he did with the French. Are you saying that he doesn't have the guts to do anything about it? 
Well, he's trying to find, you know, some music to make it work better because that's the world they live in right now. No, it's exactly correct. We don't do something about this. It is a very, very big problem. I agree. And, and, and it really is disastrous because if, in fact, you, you enforce the trade deals that you just pointed out very aptly, Neil, we can take care of this intellectual property theft. But we really don't. And it's huge in China. I spent 20 years in Latin America. It's huge in Latin America. Something should be done about it. And, and I make fun with Secretary Kerry. But the truth of the matter is we might as well sing songs because we sure as hell not doing anything about it. Well, Diana, you know, to, to kind of sum that one up, Rich put it very, very well. Uh, in the case of China, in the case of China, uh, we've reported on this show before that if we would just protect our intellectual property theft in China, we would have essentially a balanced trade. I mean, they're stealing from us it's, it's just, as much as as they're running up a deficit with, with us. Outrageous numbers. It's, it's outrageous. Exactly. For example, there's an Apple store in China. It's a fake Apple store. But it's so realistic that even the Chinese employees think they're working for Apple. And the Chinese don't shut it down. They have these fake stores all over the country, and they don't shut them down. Not to mention copies of, for example, bags. Now, the United States is preeminent in design. Everyone all over the world wants to make, uh, wants to carry American purses, wear American clothes. Uh, but yet the Chinese rip those off. And there's a question of what with the fake that you buy in China, is it a good fake or a bad fake? Some of these fakes are, uh, you know, you can hardly tell the difference. But they're well, doing thinks- nothing to close them down. Well, Diana, thanks for being on the show. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but it is true. We're putting, uh, they're sending out their A team, and we're sending out our D team. Well, and we're not even sending out businesses team. and entrepreneurs who are really are really getting hurt because they have no other way to protect themselves. And the sad thing is, Diana, that it's it's our businesses, our small businesses and entrepreneurs who are paying their taxes. They're paying their taxes to a government that's supposed to protect them, and their government is not protecting them. So what can they do about it? You know, and they're just getting nailed by this day in and day out. They're paying the money to a government that is not doing its job, and it is just wrong. Diana, thanks for being on the show. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much Coming for having up, me on. We have Alan Cole, economist at the Center for Federal Tax Policy. We're going to talk about the real value of a dollar. Made in America. Welcome to Made in America. I'm your host, Neil Asbury, together with co-host, Dr. Rich Rothman. Hey, Rich, I got so excited about the show here and got this, this adrenaline going and the passion on, on, on high here at a boil. And I forgot, I am very remiss, in, in welcoming our newest uh, affiliates. I know, and I'm excited about this, too. We're in, in, in they're only 90 miles apart. We're very pleased to have joining us now on Made in America, where we always... Fight for your jobs and the opportunities that we need to keep this country strong and safe. W-I-N-T-A-M from Cleveland, Ohio, and W-P-S-E-A-M in Erie, Pennsylvania. And by the way, W-P-S-E is broadcast from the campus of Penn State Barrens, a beautiful campus. I I just spoke there a few weeks ago, Uh, a very great place, And, and a campus that is doing all kinds of wonderful things. Uh, to promote American manufacturing. I mean, that's something that's very core to their mission. And we're very pleased to be supporting them and they supporting us here at Made in America. 
Rich, as I said at the beginning of the show, not all states are created equal. Some states, your dollar is worth a lot more, but you'd be surprised how much more. And we're very pleased to have on the show Alan Cole, who's economist at the Tax Foundation. Alan, welcome to Made in America. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we uh, read your piece. is is very good. It, the real value of a hundred dollars in each state, and it's amazing. You know, it's a the, the beta on this is is very big. I mean, in D.C., you only get eighty cents, eighty four cents on a dollar. In Hawaii, eighty five cents on a dollar. I guess maybe you would expect that. But New York, eighty six. New Jersey, eighty seven. And California, eighty eight. They're kind of at the bottom of the barrel. And then states like Mississippi, Arkansas, and Alabama. You get as much as a dollar fifteen for your dollar, so a pretty big spread there. So it's amazing, um, Alan. When I looked at your map and I saw all of the states to where you don't get great value, and you see states where you get really good value for your money, it struck me that it was roughly the blue states and the red states in our country. Um, yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I, I've noticed that correlation too. And there are some reasons for it. Some of the, them have to do with politics. Some of them have to do mostly with other things. Um, but you're definitely right to notice it. Well, so look, that's look at when you look at like 87 cents on the dollar and some of these guys, you know, 87 cents against $100. That's sort of like the exchange rate in Cuba right now for the American. <laughs> I just want you to know that. I just got back a few weeks ago. So New ago. Jersey and Cuba. So, are, yeah, they're very something. much on par. So you <laughs> You accept that you have better air conditioning in New Jersey than you do in Cuba right now. But having said that, now, so where do we go with this? This is great. I mean, people look for this all the time. That's why I used to go to Canada for vacations years ago. I had such a great discount up there. So is this forcing people to make some pretty good decisions, what they can do with their discretionary income, or better yet, move? Um, yeah, I mean, it's especially a part of retirees' decisions and where they move. One thing that you hear a lot of people tell you about is retirees moving from states like New York to states like Florida or from states like California to states like Arizona. Um, and that's because especially when there's no need to have a specific job, then you can choose, once you've already earned all of your money, then you can sort of choose states based on where your dollar goes the farthest. Well, Alan, let's, so let's let's tie this back to a very important discussion going on in our country today, and that's the minimum wage. And that's why this thing is so ridiculous about having this federal minimum wage at $15 an hour. A, it's going to just kill so many businesses. But imagine what it's going to do to the states to where your dollar goes a long way. Um, you know, things are just different. And it's 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 going to be devastating to America, but it's going to be really devastating to places like uh, Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, to where your dollar already goes a long way. You increase this minimum wage. The jobs are going to totally disappear there. Whatever jobs are left, they're on their way to Asia. So why doesn't our political elite see a correlation between purchasing power and what someone needs to make to live in that location. I, I think it's a pretty good idea to keep that minimum wage policy set at the state level um, and maybe even broken down further from there um, between cities and rural areas in the state. Um, because the fact is that rent in the District of Columbia is about 68% more expensive than in the average part of the country. 
And then um, if, you, if you look at a place like Mississippi, um, rent there is about 37% less expensive. Um, so the idea that, you know, you need to have a one-size-fits-all policy solution for, for these very different states is, is a huge mistake. Yeah, and I mean, that's, I think, the big takeaway for me here is that, you know, all states are not created equal. Some states, it's more expensive. Some states, it's less expensive. And if we're going to mess with the with the economy in those states that are already doing very well, um, we're going to we're going to bring havoc to many of these people who are just barely hanging on with their jobs. And that will be the impetus for these companies to leave these lower cost locations in the United States and to move overseas. It will be a very, very devastating thing for these states that already have it together. Hey, Alan, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Coming up, Dr. Rothman is going to give a brief robot report, because we're all waiting for that. And hopefully he'll have a few moments left over for a report on cronyism, the rise of cronyism in America. Made in America. Welcome to Made in America. I'm your host, Neil Asbury, together with co-host Dr. Rich Rothman. Hey, Rich, the hour just flew by. It flew by some really, really great topics, some great discussion with some great guests today. But to kind of wrap things up here uh, for our show, Made in America, where we never stop fighting for your jobs, what do you got with the robots? Short report on robots before we get to cronyism? Yeah, uh, just a, just a really quick hit, and <laughs> but that's a good use of the term because uh, Google, and we all know that Google and Apple and others are out there, uh, try, and and Tesla and others trying to have these driverless cars, which I still oh, yeah, don't I've understand. Seen a lot, I've seen a lot of this, and it's scary to me. It really is. I, I don't even me. understand why you want to have I, a driverless I, I, car. I, I don't get it. I, at least now, I, it's, it's just. I mean, they're already in the streets. I, I don't. Yeah, I get that, and I've There's seen. There's already it too. been fatalities. But, well. That's the point. There are crashes, and and um, Google's their self-driving car just the other day was involved in another what's that word crash, where it did crash and it was waiting to get around. And here's what really happened: there was a crash on the road. The driverless car recognized that there was a crash on the road, so the car tried to go around the obstacle because it doesn't see; it sees an obstacle. You know, it's kind of weird. It sees the obstacle, it goes around the obstacle, and gets nailed by another car who is also trying to go around the obstacle. They're not quite sure who's at fault, but they're they're downloading the Google car uh, for testimony. I'm not quite sure what that means. But anyway, so there was a crash, and it's happening again. So I don't know. I don't think I want to get in a car that, I have to tell you, I, don't, I, I can't do it. No. I, I just can't seem to get it myself to do that. Uh, in terms of cronyism, just a quick crony thing that... A uh, federal judge strikes down a Wisconsin election law. It just happened last week. Uh, two liberal groups filed a lawsuit last May challenging the laws that uh, Scott Walker, the governor, was trying to pass. A really simple law that says if you want to vote in the state of Wisconsin, why don't you show us something with a picture? That's all you have to do. Just like you do when you buy alcohol. Just like you do when you cash those state checks. Just like you do when you, what's that word, get on a plane. Things like that that everyone's doing every day. But it appears that the two liberal groups filed a lawsuit saying it really isn't fair because, well, because it isn't fair because it makes it harder for Democratic supporters to vote. 
And the judge, U.S. District Judge James Peterson, and you know what's amazing? He was appointed by Obama. So there's a little crony thing going on there. So he knocked down uh, Scott Walker's provisions that you show a picture ID saying it gave unfair advantage to the Republicans and knocked down the idea that Democrats could actually get there and vote, which I'm not really understanding. If you think about that, that's almost reverse racism on the Democrats, saying that, well, you know, our people are so inept that they can't even find a picture ID for themselves, which I find to be remarkable because you can't even go to a library without a picture ID to get a card. You can't go to a liquor store. You can't be opening up a bank account. You have to have all this stuff to make it work, but evidently it doesn't work there. Anyway, there's cronyism in that score. Here's something that we need to look into and we're going to follow over the next few weeks. It's another Russian scenario with Hillary Clinton. And here's a headline. And this comes right out of Breitbart. Uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, John Podesta, we know about him. He is very far to the left, sat on a board of a company that bagged, took in $35 million from a Putin-connected Russian government fund, uh, which we find to be very, very, very interesting. It's a relationship that Podesta failed to disclose on his federal financial disclosures as required by law when he got involved in it. And this was an opportunity for some technology uh, that was going to be created. They were trying to create in Russia a sort of a Silicon Valley that we have in just where you are in California, pretty close to that. And they were trying to do that, and they wanted to have investors coming from the United States, and they wanted to have intellectual property coming from the United States, that they'd all work together. Podesta sat on one of those boards. Hillary Clinton at the time was working, where was that, the Secretary of State. She was working for the government. And lo and behold, uh, the government uh, gave some permission to go ahead and work with the Silicon Valley people and their technology, and a fee was paid to a company that John Podesta is part of. Now, I know that's coincidence. I know we're not saying that Podesta got the money directly. He was on the board. And we're not saying that John Podesta actually gave the money to that little Hillary. And we don't know that for a fact. But having said that, Neil, isn't it a tad coincidental that another case came up like that, sort of like the Uranium One case? that went through Canada, which came into the United States and gave Putin and the Russians an opportunity to have 20% of our uranium. Again, she was Secretary of State. Money's going to somebody that the Clintons know. I don't know. You guys figure it out yourself. Check it out. Breitbart. Hey, Rich, thanks for that report. Well, we hope you enjoyed the show. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but we're going to be back again next week for another adventure of Made in America, where we never stop fighting for your jobs. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.